Hello and welcome to the second episode of Seriosity, hosted by myself and Esra. Hi everyone. Um, before we start, I just want to say thank you for all the support and all the feedback. We really appreciate it. Yeah, we've just been truly overwhelmed with all the support, so definitely keep it coming. So today we're discussing cyber warfare, and personally this is a topic that I thoroughly enjoyed researching and diving into because it's so interesting. And it is definitely a field that is so ambiguous in all terms, but definitely mm -hmm. from politics and a war studies perspective, because you know the legality, the morality of it is so unknown. Um, it's such a limitless and vast field. Um, I don't know how you felt about it, I generally enjoyed researching it. Yeah, um, I really enjoyed researching as well. I made a ton of interesting um, discoveries uh, when I was looking through the case studies. Um, and yeah, it just seems so, as you said, a very broad and vast topic. And I think that there's a lot of scholarship that is being devoted to this particular field. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was looking at the sort of ethics and morality of it, and I really wanted to read something about sort of Islamic ethics and cyber warfare. And yeah. there was such a limited amount of readings and they were kind of underwhelming, to be honest. But, you know, if there's anyone who's listening to this who's in the field, please write something about that. Because I think it's <laughs> a definite necessity because we're so involved in it. We're so involved mm -hmm. in information um, technologies. Um, but yeah, OK, let's start ahead. Let's go ahead and start with you, Freya. OK, so if I just uh, briefly introduce this topic, so... With the rapid spread of uh, information technology since the late 20th century, uh, we've witnessed the world becoming more interconnected and this technology has helped economies and has made human interaction easier. But at the same time, it has rendered states and individuals more vulnerable because the cyber domain has been militarized by adversaries in what is known as cyber warfare. Cyberspace has become a global political and operational domain, creating a virtual battlefield which has transformed the traditional understanding of war as we know it, um, you know, being fought between two rivals, either on land, sea or air. Cyber war has not only defied concepts of sovereignty as outlined in traditional IR theories, but has also further complicated normative elements of mutual respect and legality that characterise um, relations um, among democracies. So the definition of cyber warfare um, is ill-defined and there is no unanimously agreed upon definition, but I will use the RAND Corporation's definition of cyber warfare, which is, quote, cyber warfare involves the actions by a nation state or international organization to attack and attempt to damage another nation's computers or information networks through, for example, computer viruses or denial of service attacks, end quote. So this definition has been expanded by others to include uh, cyber warfare as an attack on critical state infrastructure to inflict damage and disrupt the daily activities of a state or organization. And some have even included the role of proxies in carrying out such attacks. Surprisingly, even NATO have failed to give a clear definition of cyber warfare despite their pledge to defense against cyber attacks, which many of its members have been victims of. NATO has, however, referred to cyber attacks as a threat to transatlantic security and have updated Article 5, which is their collective defense clause, to include cyber attacks and recognize cyber defense as part of its core task of collective defense. 
So I think as it stands, uh, 41 states have a cyber warfare do doctrine with 17 having offensive capabilities um, and the main cyber war powers include the US, Russia, China, Israel and Estonia. Um, and Estonia's Cyber Defense League outnumbers their full-time military and with the US, cyber spending um, is between $26 billion to $30 billion, which accounts for the entire defense budget of Germany. So moving on to uh, what effects cyber attacks have. So it can range from phishing to obtain sensitive information to destroying either the entire or parts of the state's infrastructure, including transport, online services, um, an attack on a power grid, which could lead to power cuts and disrupting communications, which could prevent the military communicating. Uh, and this obviously threatens national security. Cyber war, however, is uh, difficult to counter because you can't trace a preemptive attack and won't know of it until you're actually hit with one, which is too late because the damage has already been done. Uh, often malware like computer worms can be secretly embedded and sometimes you can't even detect them until months later. What further makes this type of warfare complicated is that cyber attacks can also be a form of proxy warfare where a state can actually hire a team of hackers and it therefore becomes difficult to trace the original state involved you know unless the hackers surrender which they won't so i was reading an article which said that the damage of cybercrime would total to six trillion dollars by 2021 and that would stand as the world's third largest economy after the US and China. So that kind of gives an idea of how much states will be investing in cyber war and cybersecurity products and services. And by 2025, it will reach $10.5 trillion annually. In an address to Congress in February 2015, US National Intelligence Director James Clapper declared that cyber attacks are a larger national security threat than Sunni extremists the nuclear ambitions of Iran and North Korea and Russian and Chinese operatives trying to penetrate national security um, communities in the United States. And the World Economic Forum viewed cyber attacks as the greatest non-environmental threat to humanity and the 2018 Global Risk Report states, quote, the use of cyber attacks to target critical infrastructure and strategic industrial sectors could trigger a breakdown in the systems that keep societies functioning, end quote. So if I just uh, cover a quick timeline of cyber attacks, um, it's quite a recent phenomenon and we can um, trace its history back to the 80s when the first recognised computer worm uh, was uh, discovered. But it really grabbed international attention in the first decade of the 21st century, um, which was characterised by a number of cyber attacks, uh, with many concentrated in the Baltic slash Eastern European region. So one significant attack which made headlines was the cyber attack in Estonia in April 2007. Foreign intruders who are believed to be Russian hacked Estonian infrastructure, including government online services, telecoms and news organisations, which were disrupted with a denial of service attack and online banking was halted. Some sites were entirely shut down and were inaccessible for weeks, which disrupted the communication of the entire country. And the timing of this was uh, really interesting as well, because at that time, uh, Russia and Estonia were both uh, engaged in a conflict over the removal of a war memorial in uh, Estonia. 
So this particular attack demonstrated the vulnerability of NATO members in cyberspace and it led to the commitment of NATO defence ministers in June 2007 to take up cyberspace issues and in 2008 NATO opened the Cooperative Cyber Defence Centre of Excellence in the Estonian capital of Tallinn. So because of his experience with being attacked in 2007, Estonia wields disproportionate cyber power and is now a major centre for cyber defence for the NATO alliance. Elsewhere in the region, um, in 2008, Georgia's computer networks were hacked. Again, the timing of this is noteworthy as well because of the war between Georgia and Russia. Um, and it was discovered that the hackers were working in coordination with the Russian military. Another big cyber attack took place in January 2009, where Israel claimed a cyber attack which hit its internet infrastructure, including government websites. This all happened whilst Israel was engaged in a military offensive in the Gaza Strip. Um, Israeli officials uh, accused Hamas and Hezbollah to have paid the hackers who were believed to be operating in a former Soviet state. So now we get on to one of the most successful cyber attacks of the 21st century, and that was in October 2010, when an Israeli origin computer malware called Stuxnet was designed to be used as a government cyber weapon aimed at disrupting the Iranian nuclear program. Stuxnet was a very sophisticated and carefully planned cyber attack and was a joint effort by the US and Israel who launched a worm which attacked an Iranian nuclear plant and it was successful in damaging thousands of centrifuges that were enriching uranium. So it inflicted serious damage. Um, it was reported that an employee in the Iranian nuclear plant inserted a USB stick which contained the Stuxnet worm into the system uh, which attacked the entire system for months without being detected. And as a result, a thousand machines were rendered useless. And then in October 2012, a Russian firm discovered a worldwide cyber attack that had been operating since 2007. Uh, the virus collected information from embassies, think tanks, the military, energy firms, uh, nuclear and other state infrastructure. The primary targets were Eastern European countries, Russia and Central Asia, but interestingly, Western Europe and North America were also found to be victims. In March 2014, Russia launched a denial of service attack against Ukraine whilst Russian armed pro-Russian rebels were controlling Crimea in the war between Russia and Ukraine. Um, in May 2014, three days before Ukraine's presidential elections, a Russia-backed hacking group took down both Ukraine's election commission and it was reported that this attack was to aid the pro-Russian candidate. Even today, Russia continues to demonstrate its cyber war capabilities. As we know, America is going through quite a turbulent period uh, with many events which have assaulted and exposed the fragility of their democracy and liberal institutions. One such event was the disruption of its democratic processes by the Russian hacking scandal of the 2016 US presidential elections. Russian hackers were able to manipulate campaigns, spread misinformation, hack the electoral system and emails, and manipulate the voter data. There were Russian-sponsored social media campaigns through the use of Facebook and Twitter accounts and bots who influenced the political discourse in the US. There were estimated 400,000 Twitter bots in the month leading up to the election, and Facebook concluded that there were more than 3,000 ads purchased by a Kremlin-linked company. Many would argue this was an attempt to undermine American democracy and the liberal institutions, 
exacerbate the social and political divisions in a political society which is already very polarized and importantly to distort narratives which would further Russian interests. It was found that Russian-sponsored advertisements targeted individuals to create greater racial tensions during the BLM protests. So when you're manipulating data and spreading fake news through the cyberspace, uh, this translates into a security threat when you have protesters up in arms on the street. And because of the Russian hacking scandals, countries like the Netherlands are reversing back to traditional votes through the ballot as opposed to electronic votes. So this actually brings me on to how cyber attacks as part of cyber warfare are enabling a psychological slash information warfare. The spread of disinformation is a weapon used in this online domain of warfare. Uh, and you can trace this back in history with uh, the Soviet and American propaganda during the Cold War. And recent examples, one which I have been following um, is of last year. Um, which is the 15-year disinformation campaign India had propagated against Pakistan to promote its national interests and undermine its adversary, again by using fake news and propaganda, especially online, which distorted narratives and influenced policymakers in the EU and the UN. So what these fake narratives achieve is the alteration of perceptions and socially engineer individuals for a specific purpose, so in this sense, one can argue psychological slash information warfare where data is weaponized by distorting and manipulating it can be seen as part of a broader type of cyber warfare. And analysts have begun to use the term hybrid warfare, which is also ill-defined, but encompasses the changing dynamics of warfare. I think that's what makes cyber warfare really interesting because, you know, you see tactics that are age-old, you know, manipulation and propaganda. Um, they've been used for centuries, but they're done in such a way, in such an ambiguous field that it, it takes time for, you know, states and people to catch up to what's actually going on. Um, and it's interesting to see how geopolitics plays into this and how countries that are, you know, cordial with each other, um, that are in times allies, actually spy on each other in the, cy in the cyber field. So yeah, to touch on the geopolitics, uh, as you mentioned, of cyber warfare. Um, so in this uh, global playing field, you have these three big contenders who are the US, China and Russia, based on how much they have invested in cyber war, their defence, their ability to thwart and conduct attacks. And these contenders have gathered intelligence um, of each other. So the CIA has concluded the role of Russian, Chinese and Iranian state agents to have been using social media and other campaigns to spread misinformation and interfere in their presidential elections. Uh, the UK has found evidence that Russia has been plotting to disrupt the what's now cancelled the Tokyo Olympics. Um, so yeah, these are countries that we you know we know are not friends, right? But mm -hmm. there were reports a few years ago of Israel, UK and US spying on each other. I think it was the UK that spied on Israeli drones. And I find it really interesting to look at what countries have defensive cyber capabilities and what countries have offensive cyber capabilities. You know, US and NATO usually have offensive capabilities as is Israel, whereas mm -hmm. North China have defensive capabilities. So they haven't invested in um cyber weapons in terms of offensive um, strategies but rather defensive strategies and it's just interesting to see um that you know nato is it's not actually just actually very typical that nato's taking the lead um on sort of you know writing a manual on telemanual which i'll talk about later and mm -hmm. also taking the lead in offensive capabilities 
um, mm-hmm. and where you know in Cyberfield you see that allies don't always act like allies. So then this kind of undermines the democratic peace thesis, right? Where the idea is that no two democracies can ever go to war. But that isn't applicable in the cyber domain, right? Yeah, I mean, very little we know of in terms of legality and morality are applicable in a field where there is no accountability, hence there is no responsibility. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So to continue on the discussion of geopolitics um, and cyber warfare, what I regard as really interesting is that as the world embraces 5G technology, there have been predictions of increased level of cyber attacks, both big in scale and scope. Um, And this is also linked to coronavirus. Um, So I think that the relationship between coronavirus and cyber attacks is actually one worth exploring. I read this article which found that online attacks targeting state agencies and systems have increased during the coronavirus pandemic. Um, These include attacks on hospitals, scientific research labs, businesses and critical infrastructure. So according to the UK's National Cybersecurity Centre, who released a report, more than a quarter of the incidents they responded to were COVID-related between September 2019 to August 2020. The NCSC reported to have thwarted 15,354 campaigns that use coronavirus-related themes to attract people and basically fool them into clicking links which contained malicious software and some involved fake shops selling PPE, test kits and even vaccines. So you can imagine that this is undoubtedly a big, big security threat. The UK has accused Russian spies targeting COVID-19 vaccine research, uh, which Russia has denied. And the UK has said that Russia has been trying to steal vaccine-related information through cyber espionage. Um, They've also warned ransomware attacks, uh, which lock people out of their computers and the users are blackmailed to make a payment to restore access. But the NCSC concluded that luckily the UK were not heavy targets of these types of attacks because British victims were less likely to pay the attackers. Similar claims uh, have also been made by the US and Canadian agencies who have said that hackers had exploited software flaws to get access to vulnerable computer systems and had used a malware called WellMess and WellMail to upload and download files from infected machines. Yeah, and this is where the law comes in, you know, because you have states accusing each other of things, but, you know, what's the, what's the conclusion, what's the solution to this? Because you have international law, you have law of armed conflict, but how, is that, how can that be applied to cyberspace and cyber warfare? Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of want to go into that a bit because, you know, law of armed conflict has existed for centuries, right? And it has two ethical, main ethical aims, right? And that's one, to ensure that war has, you know, good intention, good reason to be fought, that no war is fought unnecessarily, and to minimise unnecessary human suffering. Now, there's a lot to question there, you know, what is necessary human suffering? But for argument's sake, let's just take it as it is. So if, if law of armed conflict and international law has these aims to ensure that there's, you know, peace and security and stability in the world, how does that apply to cyber warfare? Um, I briefly want to talk about just war theory because a lot of the um, literature on cyber warfare refers back to just war um, theory tradition. It's a very old tradition. It's a Christian Judah tradition, right? But it's also the closest thing in academia, in doctrine, that we have to um, 
Islamic law of war, right? So just right. one tradition has basically like six to nine principles, depending on who you read. But it, it ensures that, you know, a country that going to war should have a just cause, right? So it can't just be anything. It has to be a just cause. And that is usually defined as self-defense, which is also what the UN Charter um, describes as a reason to go to war. It has to be declared by the right authority. It has to have right intention. There has to be a reasonable chance of success and a war has to be last resort. So when you think of, you know, how these can be applied to cyber warfare, you can see the ambiguities, right? And so yeah. and within war, just war tradition um, dictates that there has to be proportionality, there has to be a principle of discrimination, and there has to be military necessity. So proportionality means that, you know, you can't, if, if you're bombed, say, right, you can't reply, respond to that attack with a nuclear bomb. Like that's basically the idea. Like mm-hmm. Your response to an attack has to be proportional. The principle of discrimination uh, is the idea that you have to discriminate between combatants and non-combatants. And that also is what military necessity is about, is to minimise, if not eliminate, collateral damage in all, you know, whether it's things or humans, it's to minimise collateral damage. So, okay, how does this translate into cyber warfare is the question, right? So first of all, the issue would, because you mentioned definition, right? And you mentioned how ambiguous it is, how, you know, there are all these corporations, international organisations, academics, and there is not one... Um, agreed upon definition and some people even argue that there is no such thing as cyber warfare and that comes down to that well, that's interesting yeah <laughs> i didn't know about that yeah some people argue that there is no cyber warfare there'll never be cyber warfare and basically the argument is because there is no use of force in cyber warfare in terms of violence and harm so cyber weapons cannot the argument is cyber weapons cannot cause the same harm that kinetic weapons do right yeah so this is so is it warfare if there's no use of force is it use of force if there's no physical harm, right? And does the physical harm have to be immediate? So these are the questions that keep coming to my mind and I keep reading about them in the um, in literature too. Um, so it's interesting because it kind of reminds me of sort of economic sanctions not being defined as an act of war, right? And the reason for that is that economic sanctions, um, you know, other unfriendly actions like trade decisions, space-based surveillance, boycotts, severance of diplomatic relations, denial of communications, espionage, economic competitions or sanctions I mentioned, economic or political coercion, these are not um, accepted as user force. They, they, they don't reach or rise to the level of, of a threshold that is described as user force, right? And this is, I find, I have issue with this because economic sanctions, for example, they have serious, serious, serious uh, effects. Like the US yeah. sanctions on Iraq, they, it caused starvation, right? It had actual physical harm, it caused death. So to, uh, to argue that these aren't acts of war and they do not reach the threshold of use of force is problematic in itself. Mm-hmm. So you know, some people put cyber warfare within this category saying that's where they argue that it's not warfare. But on the other side of the debate is that, you know, modern society depends heavily on an infrastructure that is controlled by information technology. So any interference with the functioning of the infrastructure is essentially interference with the society and could, and in my opinion, should be considered use of force. Yeah, exactly. So I mentioned an example of uh, a cyber attack which resulted in attacking power grids. Um, so just imagine that uh, a hospital uh, facing a power cut and people are on ventilators, that results in death. 
Yeah, exactly. Or even if, you know, uh, a power, you know, a power cut that affects traffic lights. Imagine all yeah. the accidents that take place. So the, but the, the, I think the issue here is that, you know, these are all possibilities, but are they probabilities? You know, we haven't seen them happen. So that's mm -hmm. why there's so much, so much discussion about, you know, is it, is it not, is it, is it not? But yeah. so there are, there are people who define this, you know, that as non-physical warfare, which mm -hmm. in itself kind of sounds, you know, as an oxymoron, but it has real effects. And I kind of want to go into that a bit later. But another issue with sort of cyber warfare and attributing, you know, um, just war tradition or international law to it is there's a problem of attribution. You mentioned this too, that, you know, that you can't identify who's attacking you. So mm -hmm. if you can't identify who's attacking you, first of all, that blurs the principle of discrimination because you don't know who's a combatant, you don't know who's a non-combatant. Um, yeah. And that's very, very important in law of armed conflict. And that, then also when yeah. I mentioned earlier about how states can actually hire um, hackers yeah. as proxies. Exactly. So it, it's become way more difficult to actually trace who the perpetrator is. Yeah. I mean, that being said, international law today doesn't have you know, definitive um, rulings on non-state actors either. So mm -hmm. in the cyber field, this even becomes more complicated because it is exactly. mostly non-state actors. Um, yep. So another issue with cyber warfare is the dual use problem which means that, you know, any computer can be a weapon and any user can be a combatant. Yeah. So, you know, you have tons of theories and, you know, ethical um, dilemmas when it comes to nuclear weapons and chemical weapons and biological weapons, but you can identify those, right? You can't identify cyber weapons because it can literally be any computer and it can be by anyone. Um, mm. So again, this also blows the principle of discrimination and it also makes proportionality an issue. Because how are you supposed to reply proportionally if you don't know, one, who is using it, how is it being used, you know, and what is being used? Um, another issue is, I mean, you mentioned this too, like determining the beginning and the end of the conflict. Um, you know, in some of the case studies you mentioned, like Stuxnet was there for months, mm -hmm. no one knew about it. Yeah. Um, there was a Russian hacking incident that was the one to for years. So how do you understand that you know conflict when you don't know, first of all, when it started, you don't know when it's going to end, and you don't know who it's by. So how do you fight a war that you don't know anything about? And how, yeah, how do, you do you fight a war that's basically undeclared? Yeah, undeclared. And how do you make sure that's just, right? These are the issues. I mean, and this also means that you can't determine the scale of the attack. And if you can't determine the scale of the attack, you can't respond proportionally. Mm -hmm. And the conflict or the war cannot come to a definitive and just end, right? The, another issue, which I find this is a bit weird one, right, is a, it's, it's a question of moral entity. It's who has the moral agency in this um, cyber attack, right? Because there's a, what's called an ontological hiatus, right? Because in, you know, in traditional warfare, what's involved is, you know, people, right? Humans are involved and the idea is to protect human beings um, and collateral damage in its original, in its original meaning is defined as, you know, non-human things right buildings infrastructures this and that mm -hmm. in cyber warfare so there's a question I, I find it funny i'm sorry there's a question of whether computers have a moral entity right whether, <laughs> yeah. these so, inanimate objects yeah so whether these are they have the moral agency whether they can be you know considered as an ontological um, being uh, right it's just a discussion that exists so i thought i, I brought it bring it up but 
you know, the issue with cyberspace in terms of moral entities is that, you know, it's pre-political, it's pre-strategic, and it's pre-ethical in this sense. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it doesn't fit in with our definitions of political and strategic organizations and our, you know, moral and legal norms. It's very difficult to apply these to the cyber field. Um, another issue which brings us to, you know, how the law, how international law, how law of armed conflict can be applied to cyberspace is territorial integrity and political independence. Because cyberspace, although it is recognized, it is not formally, it is formally ungoverned, right? So there is no formal governance in the cyberspace. Yeah, so how can law of armed conflict be applied to cyberspace? You know, it kind of has to be seen at how NATO accepted as a fifth domain of operation. Um, So how can it be applied to it considering all these issues that we talked about. Yeah, and um, it's funny because NATO as an organization uh, describes uh, cyber attacks as a breach of international law, but then where like there's no governance on it. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, an attempt to sort of govern the cyberspace um, came out of NATO. You know, they have a manual called Tallinn Manual um, going back to the Estonia um, case study. Um, this is what how they define this is this okay it's academic nine binding legal reference for application of international law to cyber operations now it's interesting because they the first edition of it was released in 2013 and it was called cyber warfare then in 2017 they changed it to cyber operations you know it almost like they you know they changed it because you know, cyber attacks today most commonly fall beneath the threshold at which international law would typically declare them to be a formal act of war. So again, there's the idea that you know it's not really cyber war, but it's cyber operations. It's they're not act of wars, but they you know act that acts that um, break international law. So who was it drafted by? It was drafted by obviously NATO and NATO allies. Although in t- 2017, they um, included China and Belarus as part of um, their group of experts. So what the Talon Manual tries to do is it tries to apply existing international law and its principles to cyberspace. Right? One such principle being sovereignty. Now, how do you apply this to cyberspace? How are you going to argue that you know, countries and states have sovereignty within um, the cy- cyber um, field? Um, and it, it argues basically that states have sovereignty over components of the internet and, you know, attacks that are started from their territory or, you know, if they can identify where the attack comes from, then they have a right to, you know, self-defense or this or that. But again, you know, the, these are such difficult things to do, especially in the cyber field where non-state actors are used. Um, they think it can be in several countries at the same time. They can use proxies, they can redirect, they can do several things that I personally don't understand but seems to complicate the matters even further. So, yeah. and they also argue that a thing that the Taliban is trying to argue, which I find really, really interesting is that, you know, a given cyber attack may not rise to the level of an armed attack does not mean that it is not illegal. So they're not necessarily trying to define, you know, cyber operations as warfare, but they are trying to declare it illegal. And, you know, the, the fact that Taliban manual was released in 2017 is also quite, um, interesting as, as as you know you went through the timeline you know they were trying to they yeah. were getting prepared following the russian of, yeah, hacking scandal basically yeah um there are a few interesting things in the talent manual and one of them is um there's a there's a part about prisoners of war right and you know prisoners of war under international law and you know in just war tradition have protection they are assumed to have dignity you don't see this 
but and how this applies to cyberspace our cyber operations is um they have declared it illegal to share degrading and humiliating photos images videos of prisoners of war and the first thing that comes to mind is Abu Ghraib and the Iraq war and you know wow we've all seen those photos and you know that happened in 2004 um yeah it's just I just find it really um hypocritical um but you know the Taliban manual uh, like I said it's very superficial um and uh, the laws that is trying to uphold in cyberspace you don't see the countries that brought the laws uphold it in Being actual held space. Accountable. <laughs> yeah, or yeah, they don't even do it in actual space, but they they expect others to do it in cyberspace. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Western hypocrisy um, aside, as we all know it, um, I want to briefly go back to sort of the US elections of 2016 being hacked and, you know, how, you know, the definition of cyber warfare, the argument that it's not warfare because it doesn't have real effects, um, I mean, look at what oh, it has, has real effects. Exactly. Look at what has happened since 2016. Yeah. You know, if say Russians hadn't hacked the elections, if they hadn't, you know, it's difficult to argue because it's like it's so um, there's so much ambiguity. But say you know Trump didn't win the win the election, right? I was going to say win the war. <laughs> say Trump didn't win the election. Um, would have would we see um, you know white supremacists, Nazis? storm yeah. into the capitol building um would we have seen them get stronger and stronger and more and more brave over the last four years um would have you know white supremacy and nazism and fascism been this strengthened to this level um mm-hmm. so to argue that you know cyber warfare doesn't have real effects you know it isn't warfare because it doesn't cause harm i mean we've seen people lynched in the past few years for god's sake you know you get me i mean uh, we keep talking about you know it's 2021 these don't happen anymore they do happen and weirdly the, the the technology and the progress that we rely on has actually made it worse you know has it brought yeah. good yeah it has brought good you know arab spring happened through social media mm-hmm. you know we've seen it bring together people in good too but yeah just i'm just i'm amazed at the effects of it to be honest i really am because you know it's there's you know memes on Twitter were going around about how you know the domino effect of you know Facebook being invented and you know Nazism having a comeback it it literally is that that's what we're seeing and and also just to add as well with mm-hmm. the recent events um, in Capital um, one would question why would Mark Zuckerberg lock Trump's Facebook and Twitter accounts obviously because his words are inflammable and it's inciting violence right yeah I mean the question is why hasn't he done it before that's the other yeah. thing, you know these um I mean his account is entertaining <laughs> arguably um but you know these tech companies they make money of this you know they don't care yeah. of the effects they don't care what politics causes what you know what harm it causes um they do make money of it for better or for worse so you know that kind of it's just it's the ethical and moral questions regarding the cyberspace um these tech companies social media are interesting because yes it brings good you know it connects people blah 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 especially you know we're in a pandemic a lot of us are in lockdown you know how are you going to stay connected with your loved ones blah 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 but you know it also has very dangerous effects um so yeah to just briefly summarize um the discussion you know the, the issue comes down to definition right and that's because um we don't know the limits of cyberspace we don't know 
um, everything that goes on it. We don't know who does what and we don't know what it is really. So when you can't define something, you can't limit it. And when you can't limit it, you can't make it illegal or legal. And that's what cyber warfare comes down to. Um, you know, a lot of the states take part in it. A lot of them accuse each other of doing things. Um, you know, we saw a bunch of case studies that Freya mentioned. And, you know, Stuxnet was a big deal. It was, it, it, it seriously harmed the Iranian nuclear program, you know, for better or worse, that's a different argument. Um, <laughs> But was there, you know, were there any consequences? No, there weren't. You know, Israel and US, nothing has happened. This was Yeah, because they're still not blamed. It's yeah. just speculation. I mean, there is no way to prove it. Do you get me? It's very, exactly. very difficult to prove that. So, and that's why, you know, cyber warfare has become a very popular type of warfare. And because it's cost-free, it's, it's a financially very attractive type of warfare. You know, you don't need any new factory equipment, maybe what, a few. Um, it's... It's not like, and it's the, the, I think the most attractive part of cyber warfare is lack of accountability. So the yeah. states get away with so much and they don't mm -hmm. have to be responsible or accountable for what they do. Yeah, so I would say uh, what we're seeing is an increasing trend of uh, states resorting to this type of warfare because aside from like technological costs and the cost involved in updating these systems, in a way it can be argued that it is efficient because it involves zero to less casualties and it's simply easy with one click of a button in the comfort of an office you can potentially crash the entire infrastructure of a state i'm simplifying by saying one button but like you get the idea and um as long as you can evade accountability as you said and not be traced mm -hmm. and you know with no proper restrictions or a clear definition as to what cyber warfare constitutes then I don't see why cyber warfare would not be a popular resort. Exactly. And on that negative note, we'll <laughs> conclude today's uh, discussion. Uh, thank you for listening.